This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This week on Meet in 3, we're embracing the spooky spirit of Halloween, from zombies to witches. We're exploring the odd, the occult, and the taboo in the world of food. There are restaurants with no storefront, shrunken down into hundreds of square feet versus thousands of square feet. No servers, no hosts, nobody taking your order. The rats in the sewers are now smelling, all of a sudden, fresh food molecules. And those rats were like, holy cow, follow that scent. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to Item 13, an African food podcast, and I'm your host, Yom Akuaku. Every week, we'll delve into the delicious world of African food, including chefs, curators, and bloggers. Here's the show. So welcome to the show, Rahim. I'm, it's great to have you on. You, I, as I mentioned to you earlier, you are the final and therefore the most special guest <laughs> of, the I feel <laughs> of the season. Um, I'm really thrilled to talk to you and, you know, share your story and your journey with, with the rest of the world. Um, I'm sure a lot of people in New York and then just based on the press you've done um, know your story, but I think will be helpful for the wider audience. We have a huge audience on the continent um, and then just from people awesome. across the country across the country in the US and in Canada, I think, would benefit from learning from your story, um, which I've always found fascinating. So awesome. I wanted Thank to you. share. Yeah, cool. So for those that don't know you, um, what do you want to share about who you are? Um, and you can tell us about your brother too, because he's not here to speak for himself, so you can say <laughs> Well, <laughs> you can I, I whatever you want to say about it. I, I know, right? I'll introduce him very briefly, um, but I'm, um, I, I don't think I will do justice to him introducing himself, so I'll announce him, but I won't go into any detail, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> uh, you know, he's my brother. We're very, very close, but still, everyone's you know, likes to present themselves in a very specific way, and I don't want to violate that, you know? <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, thank you, thank you so much for for having us on here. I, um, you know, when when I, for one, when I heard you were doing this podcast, I, I was very excited about it. And specifically, an, you know, an African food podcast, I always felt like the the media component in African food and beverages, you know, um, you know, um, going into the mainstream was lacking, right? And so when I stumbled upon this, when I got your email which I was very, very late to reply to. Uh, <laughs> um, I, you know, I, was just, I just loved the whole idea and um, the, the context within which we met back during the Dining on the Mat series, I just loved the, 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 the production level of you know, that, um, that event that I, um, I felt like you would, uh, I, I, I look good talking to you on any <laughs> platform, you know? <laughs> so thank you for having me. Yeah, no, um, that's, that's, that's great. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm the co-founder of Jinjan Brothers. Um, I, um, my brother is the other half, and my brother Mohammed, and really our goal with Jinjan Brothers is to develop and bring to market food and beverage products inspired by traditional African recipes. And, you know, we started out with um, Jinjang, uh, classic ginger-based beverage that you find throughout West Africa, made with fresh ginger, pineapples, lemon, vanilla, and anise. Um, but really, our goal is not to stop there, right? It's to take everything from um, you know other beverages like ginger and other snacks and you know traditional grains and dishes and stews, all these things that we of the continent know are there and are amazing and if the rest of the world was to get a chance to get exposed to it they would absolutely embrace it um and really bring it to market um in a way that would give and do justice to the people and the culture within which these um these products evolved so that's the that's the that's the overall mission 
Yeah, you, you summarized it quite nicely, and there's a lot to unpack in, in that summary that we will cover um, throughout our conversation today. But I wanted to take us um, maybe, I don't know how many years back that would be, but um, just how and when did you guys end up in, in the States? Because a lot of um, African immigrants that I speak to have, you know, their own interest, including myself, have their own interesting ways of, one, how they ended up here, um, mm -hmm. Two, they they probably started in a tradition, quote unquote, traditional job or role, and then sort of found themselves um, mm -hmm. in this food space. Um, mm -hmm. Not just for the business aspect of it, but there's also like that you know story to you, that authentic storytelling piece. You know, like wanting mm -hmm. to share aspects of ourselves. So if we go back, you tell me how many years ago. I don't know <laughs> how many years ago that was, but um, how you landed here. Uh -huh. um, and then um, even as you, you spoke about, you know, you know what you want to do with Gingen in terms of not just the drink, but eventually snacks and whatnot, it made me mm -hmm. think about the fact that you guys, you guys are guys, <laughs> are guys, right? And when I think about yeah. how I grew up, um, I grew up cooking very early on, and um, mm -hmm. I think of my younger brother now, who who is not was not immersed as much in the kitchen as my sister and I were, right? So I also mm -hmm. wonder what that connection is for you in terms of um, kitchen experience and then coming into into this. Sure. Uh, so I'll, uh, I'll touch on when we got here first and, uh, and then oh, yeah, maybe go, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, then, uh, and, then, and then go back to the somewhat beginning and, and tie in, uh, you know, how the like you said, uh, males in, in Africa traditionally aren't really, you don't really catch them much in the kitchen unless they're mm. hungry, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I was hungry a lot, so maybe that has something to do with it. <laughs> um, so yeah, we, my brother came to the States before I did. He came in 97. Um, he was 13 going on 14 years old. He, you know, he stayed with friends of the family. I mean, our, like you said, our immigrant story that we, if you want to like unpack that portion of it, we'll spend the whole hour only talking about that. So I'm only going <laughs> to brush yeah, it Yeah, and, and I think, <laughs> I think because you guys do a lot of press, I will, I can link up to some, for people that want to know this okay. whole story, I can link to some um, other press that shares it because ultimately we will you know i want to touch on it so people have a sense or a flavor of it but what um our goal for the conversation ultimately is to help one because we have a lot of small food business owners that listen to this yeah. so want to yeah. delve more into your operations versus um exactly it's it's a, it's yeah. a podcast about african about food specifically african <laughs> food so that's what we're going to spend the bulk of the time talking about yeah um so yeah my brother came uh, in 97 around 13 he um he stayed with friends of the family in Pennsylvania and then moved down to Atlanta with uh, another friend of the family. Um, ended up coming back to New York briefly and graduated high school in uh, New Hampshire. So I came to see his graduation. I came in uh, 2001, around 2001. Um, I was 14, um, about a month or so before I turned 15. And initially I was just coming on vacation and the plan was for me to finish, you know, stay for for the for the summer, go back home, finish high school there, and I probably would have ended up in France uh, for for college or Canada or something like that. But I ended up staying um, because I after the summer I was learning English, and uh, we just figured that it's a good idea for me to stay here. And I, since I was somewhat young, and learned the culture, and just have an easier time as I grow older, adapting to the, to the American culture and Western culture as a whole. So that's, that's sort of how we got here. Um, then, you know, my academically, fast forward a few years later, my, my brother um, went to business, uh, well, he studied business in undergrad. I, I don't want to say he went to business school and people think an MBA. <laughs> He, he did business administration in undergrad and I, uh, I did engineering for undergrad and, and grad school. I, um, yeah, I did engineering uh, undergrad at Michigan State grad school in Germany and France and my brother did his uh, undergrad. He started out at um, Polytech, NYU Polytech here and uh, finished up at Mercy. And the way we got into this 
food business, really. Um, so, our, you know, our goal early on, and this is something that any, any African that's been here any, any, um, any length of time would attest to, it's really just a general frustration on, of how we, pre how we present it to the world, right? Um, for one, if we present it at all, right? So it's, it's just starting something that would allow us to, um, to present Africa in a better light. So we could have done this in, in fashion, in music, media, in, you know, or if we just happened to do it in food and for a number of reasons. Um, food is one of the, you know, one of the principal aspects of, of, of any culture, right, that can be readily embraced by someone else with minimal effort. You know, unlike traveling or learning a new language, right, you can walk into, uh, a, you know, a Ghanaian restaurant, a South African restaurant without having ever, you know, interacted with that culture yeah. before, right? Taste their food, learn their food, and really, if you fall in love with that, it, it, it opens up um, your, your, your curiosity to right. learn the culture further, right? Uh, so that's, that's sort of why we picked food. And beyond that, if you think about the situation of traditional African food in Africa, it's a massive market that's extremely fragmented and there's yet to be really any significant brand behind that, right? You have an easier time getting, you know, um, cases of namely imported brand or product than you do having some of the local stuff, you know, which is yeah, mind boggling. And, and, and even, and even, um, even in the fragmented market, I'm finding that like Chinese and Asian stores are also sort of taking hold, like in terms of gro groceries or retail in some ways, yep. they're taking over yep. that, that space as well, you know, which is yeah. Yeah. frustrating. You're right. Before them, it's the Lebanese, and you know, in Western, in, in in Francophone countries, the French. If if it's something more valuable, um, if in the Anglophone countries, maybe some of the Brits and something like that. But that's it. It's almost never us, you know, commercializing our own stuff. Um, and 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 yeah. So so we feel like the African market, like the traditional beverage space in Africa, or not just beverage, food, beverage, like everything, CPG is so massive, right? And that if we build a brand here, uh, that, and the only reason we started in the US is because one, we're in the US, and two, infra infrastructurally, it, it's easier to launch a business here than it is to launch a business in Africa, right? Uh, and, and we also felt that if we start a business here, we build it, you know, we're, we're of the continent, we understand the culture really well. Uh, if we take it from here we, and then we go back to Africa, there will be a sense of pride in our people in receiving it. And let's be honest, oftentimes the, the people, you know, the businesses that are started on the continent by people of the continent aren't as readily embraced, right? right. But until, if it's, until if it, they quote unquote make it, <laughs> make exactly. it elsewhere, you know, which is. Uh, yeah, so, but if you, bring, if you bring your brand back there and it's like, hey, this is killing it in America or in France or in name the Western country, right? And, you know, you have. You know, white people are drinking this or white people are eating this. All of a sudden, you know, they'll, they'll embrace you a little more, more readily. I mean, that is not the primary reason, but these are all factors that played into us deciding, you know what, let's get this going here before we, before anything else. Um, okay. as, for, as for spending any time in the kitchen or why we started <laughs> the food product uh, <laughs> not, not being cooked, uh, for one thing, so we came here at a really relatively young age. So in some ways, we um, we had to be independent. I mean, at least me. My brother is not a great cook, but I cook a lot, uh, right? Because at at you know by the time I got to college, even when I was in high school, I I used to cook for us at home. And when I was a kid back home in Guinea, um, I was a little fat kid, so I loved hanging out with my mom in the kitchen, oh. right? Because uh, you know, <laughs> in the kitchen, I would <laughs> I would help her. I would I would I would hold her, you know, help her cut the meat or do something like that just so I have first dibs when the food is ready you know what I mean <laughs> and I just generally loved hanging out with my mom so there was that exposure this doesn't mean that I knew how to cook whatsoever uh, but you know I, I had I had an affinity for you know I didn't grow up with this 
mindset and uh, of men don't spend time in the kitchen. And my dad also wasn't like that. My dad was was pretty, um, yeah, it was pretty uh, what do you call it, progressive in that sense. Yeah. So all of that played into played into it. Plus, uh, here I spent about you know on I essentially paid my way through college waiting tables in 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 the in the U.S. Oh, and yeah. as I waited tables, I attended bar, I managed a bar, so I have a lot of experience in the hospitality space. Um, everything from little mom and pop shops to like Michelin star restaurants in New York City. Cool. So you, I mean, actually, even before we go ahead, I I think it might be helpful to explain what ginger means. Like, I don't know if it means if if it has any specific meaning in a language. It sounds like ginger, so I don't know if it's a play on the word ginger or if, uh, <laughs> or if it's um, I don't know. You tell us. Another language. Yeah. Yeah. So, so ginger, the 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 ginger-based drink, right? Um, that we make in Guinea. Is called ginger. Now, oh, okay, okay. Now it's not. It doesn't mean it, like none of the languages in Guinea, uh, like it doesn't mean ginger in any of the languages in Guinea. It's a specific name for the liquid mm-hmm. beverage. That specific liquid beverage. Um, and for example, ginger in my in my native language, Fulani, is uh, nyamakuledi. Oh, uh, it means okay. it means pepper of the earth. And so if you were to go to places like Ivory Coast or Mali, you know, where you have more of the, the, the Mandingo speakers, uh, they're calling Yamakuji, right? Or uh, same thing. Oh, so that, so wouldn't, that wouldn't easily roll off the tongue for us. Not, not as easily. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a total coincidence that ginger sounds mm-hmm. like ginger. Yeah. And it just made sense to use it. Yeah, that's that's good branding. Um, so I wanted to talk about your cafe in Harlem. Um, yeah. Because we'll delve into the business of the the drink itself after the break. But I wanted to talk specifically about the cafe. Like why why a cafe? So you've you know you've done. I don't know if it was always in the plan, but you've done. You know the beverage. It's doing fairly well. Um, why did you want to settle yourselves with the brick and mortar store, and then why Harlem specifically too? So the strategy from the, this was part of the strategy from, from the very beginning. Um, the way we see it is evolving and is, um, you know, the, the plan with the cafes is to have them, you know, have a number of them in, uh, in, in major metro areas. So imagine like a few of these in New York City, places like, um, you know, DC, Atlanta, Houston, Seattle, London, you name it, right? Like major metropolitan areas um, is to have the cafes in those locations. And the reason why we felt that a cafe had to be part of the part of the you know the strategy is that you know we're trying to sell African culture. We're trying to you know demystify the products, cultures, and people of Africa, right? And you, it's hard to accomplish that with just a packaged product because there's only so much you can communicate on a bottle, on a label, on a bottle. Um, so the cafes, uh, when you walk into them, you know, from the decor to the music to the flavors, right? Um, it's meant to give you this, um, you know, experience, like, like, you know, like this experience of, of, of African culture in a way that you could not get with just interacting with a, with, with a, with a label. So that's really the idea. You walk in there, you're sitting in there, you might walk in and just get a, a latte and not get one of our specialty beverages, right? So we, we not just ginger, but we right now we already have our next, the, the, uh, the next uh, three skills that we roll out. There's a hibiscus based drink, um, we call it Bisap. Um, there's a, 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 like a, two teas, one is a Moroccan menti called a Thai, and the other one is a Ken Kiliba. It's this, um, like hardy bush that grows on marginal lands throughout West Africa. That's amazing in terms of its health benefits that's, that we're also selling there. So these are, so the cafe allows us to not only future some of those products on there and use it as a testing ground for some of those products before we shift them into like a packaged drink that we're distributing through either direct to consumer online or through using third party retailers. All of us at HRN have been keeping busy despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. 
While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN can provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of food radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new shows. We had to cut off our first half of our conversation, our first third of our conversation, actually, with Raheem because... um, because Seattle had a brief power outage. And so things, these things that you expect in Africa happen right here. And, and actually Seattle is a big tech hub now, right? Too. So it's, it's interesting that it would happen, happen here with all of our high tech stuff. Um, and then we were just shut off. So, but the good thing about it is that we are now joined by the other half of Gingen Brothers. <laughs> yes. Uh, which is great. So things always happen the way they're supposed to <laughs> in that yeah. sense. So we're, we're glad to have you on, um, Mohammed. Um, maybe do you want to introduce yourself a little bit before we jump back into where we were at in the interview? Yeah, I'm uh, glad to be here. Um, my name is Mohammed Diallo. I'm the other half of Jinjam Bros. Uh, the, 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 the skinnier looking older brother. <laughs> 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 yeah and uh yeah that's that's really it i think uh, I, I keep it brief and uh people will get to know more uh, as we speak i think sure cool um so when we when we spoke with raheem last time um we talked a little bit about how you guys came to the u.s your early memories of food and cooking and what brought you to starting the jinjan uh brand of drinks um, but before going into the specifics of that business, I, I wanted you guys to tell us why, why you decided to saddle yourselves with a brick and mortar store, um, why you chose to have a cafe, why you chose to have it in Harlem in particular, um, what is the thought process behind that? Yeah, we've been asking ourselves that same question lately. <laughs> uh, no, no, but... Um... The, the brick and mortar has always been in the equation, to be honest with you. Um, uh, the plan was initially, you know, once we, we put together this amazing business, we raised hundreds of millions of dollars, we grow the <laughs> business all over the country. A few, late, few years in, we would get the cafes going, we would open the cafe here and there and, and expand um, at that point. Uh, but the, what we realized is the reality is quite different in terms of uh, um, uh, getting funding uh, for mm. you know people with our background, uh, you know we don't necessarily uh, we we don't have the the ideal profile, let's say, for what yes. uh, uh, um, investors, CPGs, uh, um, uh, VCs necessarily look for in the initial phase. So we have to make sure that we can prove to them that we are the real deal that mm. we can do and we can deliver upon what we're promising them. So from the from the packaging good side of things, we, we managed to do that really well with the one drink. Uh, but the challenge was still, uh, you know, um, getting that, um, um, that image or sort of selling them on what the, the, the larger, the, the bigger picture, you know, mm. they didn't understand beyond what they saw and they tried, which was simply the ginger drink. Uh, what we what we're trying to achieve is a full CPG uh, company that also had hospitality uh, embedded in it. You know, a, a a a brand that can be that can house all these different amazing products from from back home, essentially. Uh, so uh, when you know, because we weren't able to convey that message thoroughly, um, we decided, you know, perhaps if you do, uh, even with the ginger drink, people didn't quite get it until they saw it and they tried it and they tasted it. But perhaps if you give something more comprehensive, something like a space people can come into 
and get immersed into the culture, listen to the music, the smell, the taste, the sound, try these other drinks like the Sorello's, uh, Zobo, Pisap, mm-hmm. uh, you know, try some of our food, like the grains and stuff uh, that we have uh, back home and the sauces. Perhaps the picture would be more vivid and clearer. Um, and uh, uh, quite frankly, it worked pretty well, you know, until we closed in March due to COVID yeah. and uh, uh, it, it, it was going f- uh, amazingly well. We had rave, rave reviews. People all of a sudden came in and they knew about all these other drinks that we were trying to serve. And when investors or other people that we were trying to talk to uh, uh, came in and spoke to us, uh, it, it, we didn't have to say that much because they saw everything and mm. they tried it and, and they believed in it. And, uh, you know, it's nothing feels better than people walking in and say, <laughs> yo, Starbucks got nothing on you guys. Like, <laughs> this place is better than Starbucks. I would rather come in here than go anywhere else. So really it was just to, to, to show that we 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 can execute at that level. We can have a space and a place and uh, provide quality products that are that good and that excellent. You know, it's, it's all about uh, the quality of the product is very good, but also presentation is extremely important. And we were able to put all of that together uh, with the cafe. Yeah, and I agree. And I can speak firsthand because I've been to the cafe a couple of times and I think um, just by, like, like you said, there's a certain pride, at least for me, having sort of been in this space now for five plus years, um, I look at a lot of brands for a better, for lack of a better term. And um, there's a certain pride when you walk into a space like that, that not only sort of captures your identity or tells your, 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 your culture, your story in this, in a way that you recognize, but it's also done at a level that you can be proud of, that you can say, hey, like my friend from, you know, Italy or wherever, like I'm yeah. going to take you to this place that, you know, shows you a little bit more about who I am and where I'm from and all of that stuff. And I thought that, so the people that are telling you that this, this has got nothing on Starbucks, yes, there's that, but then also from, from, from a person that's, that's African, there's that um, connection to it um, that... Absolutely. Yeah, that that I, I think is hard to to replicate. So kudos to you guys. And and one of the things I wanted, even even with just even before you had the cafe, I think you may not you may be underselling yourselves in terms of the story you're t- trying to tell and branding and your brand identity. I think it's really strong. I think you can you. just by virtue of being on your website, on Instagram, on social, all of that. Did you have a particular? Um, I guess, story that you wanted to tell or what's the overall vision in terms of the quote-unquote African story that you're trying to tell through your brand identity, whether it's through the interior design, through the logo design, what's the... Um, yeah, so um, the, the, I guess the story we're trying to communicate to the world really is that, you know, pe- that the people of Africa, the people that come from the continent and the products that we have on the continent and really everything associated with Africa is a lot more than uh, the narrative that folks outside of Africa have, uh, you know, essentially have known all their the whole lives, right? So typically you mention Africa to folks uh, that don't know of the continent or are not really, um, you know, as, as, as I guess, um, that don't know as much about the, the world outside of wherever they come from, um, it, it tends to not be a positive image they get of Africa, mm-hmm. right? These ideas of corruption, ideas of poverty, it's just, you know, this basket case of the continent that just needs people to come out from the outside and save them, right? Um, and you think about, we had a lady, I, I mean, I give, this has happened a number of occasions. We'll have people come into the coffee shop and ask, you know, when we tell them our beans, our, you know, our, our drip coffee is a blend of beans from Africa, Congo, Rwanda, and Ethiopia, you'll have them, you'll, you'll have people that don't know that there's coffee in Africa, literally. Right. Right. Uh, and, you know, whereas coffee comes from Africa, right? Yeah. It, 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 <laughs> I, I had a Colombian couple once come sit there, you know, you could tell the tourists, order coffee, they, you know, they had the latte and, uh, and the cappuccino, I believe it was. And they just loved it. So I come over to clear their plates. And she asked, uh, the, the, the lady asked me, is this Colombian coffee? We're like, you know, right? you could tell Colombian. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I, said, I, said, I said, do you like it? She goes, yeah, it's amazing. And, and then I tell her it's not Colombian coffee. And I explained to her what the blend is. Mm-hmm. And she was surprised that there was coffee as good as whatever she perceives Colombian right. coffee. 
right? But that's not from coffee, it's from Colombia. And even more so that it's from Africa, right? Like she, this woman from Colombia takes pride in coffee, but doesn't know that these are beans that probably started their lives somewhere in East Africa. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the trans there. So just generally changing that, um, that view people have of Africa. And, you know, we tell this to folks often, we could have done this in other, in other spaces, in media and fashion and you name it. It just so happens that food has a unique uh, food. You, you know, you can embrace another culture to the food in a way mm. that you cannot do anything else, right? You, it's harder to learn a language or to pack your bag than go and travel around Africa and get to learn Africa that way. But you can go to, uh, if we had places like the Jinjan Cafe, you know, throughout the world, you can have people go in there and even even if um, that doesn't necessarily completely change their mindset, their the view of Africans, African Africans, it will at least have something else that's positive in their mind that they can associate with Africa beyond whatever preconceived notions they have, you know? So it's that, yeah, just essentially just highlighting the fact that we're capable of executing at the highest level, just like everyone else, and that our products should be, you know, um, everywhere just like everyone else's products are in Africa that's more or less yeah that's a winded way of uh, telling you we just want to tell the story of Africa yeah I and I agree and it's it, even with the coffee are we going to say something yeah it's Mohammed now but if, if I may jump in quickly one yeah. thing we did not want to um, compromise on was was quality we we, we noticed uh, that whenever we mentioned our products and of course we too had frustration of going into certain markets and um, seeing the branding was a bit poor, but we realized one of the biggest difference between our products and other products out there in the market is really just a lack of uh, an absence of branding or taking branding more seriously. Mm. So um, I say this because what we did is looks good and it even looks simple sometimes, but it, it really was quite difficult. We went over to, through over 70 different designers <laughs> get to what we wanted to have simply because the, st you, the stereotype is everywhere they don't do it in purpose but every de every designer brand designer that we went to was giving us stuff like with uh, like an african lady yeah. holding something <laughs> on their head <laughs> like a souvenir shop you know Designing a souvenir like shop, you, know. you know like just just everything stereotypical about africa mm. like that's that's the type we were like listen we forget perhaps we should tell you to forget about africa yeah. as a whole just make the best possible looking brand that you can. And communicating even that was difficult the moment we mentioned Africa. So we really, really had to be extremely patient and just go through people and have the courage to say, no, sorry, you're close, but not quite there. No, thank you, thank you, thank you. So, um, you know, we, we just have to take ourselves also serious, serious enough to, to know that, you know, if our, our product, product, our qualities are of great products um, and, and, and if we can just also make it look as good Thank you, Our products have a great quality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have great quality products. Yeah, exactly. A great quality part. And if you can simply get the, uh, the the look, the brand, and take everything else that comes along with it more seriously, uh, everyone else has no choice but to take us seriously, in, in essence. And I think that's how we will change the narrative of Africa from what we're doing here to, to what you're doing. Uh, what you're doing is also very high quality. So it's all of those things that need to come together for um, for Africa to be viewed uh, in a slightly better light or in the way that we know that it, it is or it can be. Yeah. Um, as you were just talking about the quality of, of, uh, of your products, it made me start to think I'm now going to transition into talking about the CPG, the food business, packaging business in particular, and, and how challenging it can be, one, starting just with regulations, right? So talking about quality reminds me of uh, my brother actually started, started a, a juice um, business some time ago um, but didn't wasn't able to follow through with it for a variety of reasons but one of the things that he found challenging was meeting like FDA standards um, for the things that or the claims that were on the label right so if I remember correctly you can correct me if I'm wrong because I, I don't have the bottom in front of me I, I think uh, your drink is considered or labeled organic and GM, GMO free, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. But it's at least organic. Um, yeah. So if people people are thinking about entering, and, and a lot of people that are doing this want to enter into this space and are looking at juices specifically, are probably going to go that route because of the signal of quality of um, health um, 
what are the, in terms of labeling and meeting regulations, what are some of the hurdles or what are some of the considerations people need to think about as they um, put together a product for? So, you know, um, food, food, food is very heavily regulated. I mean, if, if you think about the fact that food and food, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, right? So it's regulated at the same level as drugs. Yeah. Or, or, rightfully right rightfully so and depending on where you are i mean we're in the u.s so we'll just focus on cases that are specific to the u.s uh each state has different regulatory bodies that you might fall under right so in new york for example we have to be inspected by the department of agriculture and that's a state department um if but if you're a brick and mortar location that's uh, like the cafe that has to be inspected by the Department of Health of the city of New York. So there's a local level um, oh, that we have to deal with in New York City for the cafe. And then for the packaged goods, we have to, um, you know, register with the FDA and then uh, get be, be inspected by the Department of Agriculture of the state of New York, right? So, and then you have the voluntary sort of regulatory stuff you have to comply with for say, for any sort of, any claims and uh, non-GMO certifications, right. uh, organic certification. And it's not just applying for it and getting the pay, you know, getting approved for the first time. It's an ongoing reg uh, compliance burden, right? Because uh, you get inspected annually, but you have to track all your, you know, for, you know, all the ingredients you use, everything, everything, you know, very specific documentation you have to have in place that they can come in and audit once a year and, you know, decide whether you can keep your certification or not, right? So that's um that's really the the main areas you have to deal with. The FDA, the FDA is not a regulatory body per se, right? They don't come and inspect you, um, but you have to be registered with them just in case yeah. what recalls and things like that. Um, and they 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 issue guidance on regulation for the states and the and and the local municipalities to taken on force, right? So they will issue guidance on how to say, police the juice business and the Department of Agriculture at the state level will adapt, more often than not, they'll adopt those, uh, those uh, recommendations, but they might take it and adjust it a little bit. And those are, that's the body you're interfacing with as a brand to stay in compliance. Um, now it's, it's a lot of paperwork, but honestly- <laughs> I was gonna ask. <laughs> <laughs> it's not impossible. Um, and I, one thing I would share with, you know, some, some of your audience, even if it's not just on, in the food space, really, one thing I've learned uh, over the last, I don't know, six years or so, is that most of what you're doing in your business is paperwork, right? It's, yeah. it's sort of counterintuitive. You'll think that it's a lot of the things you're getting up and doing, you know, the making the product, but the most important aspects of your business will be paperwork related, you know, whether <laughs> complying with, you know, financial regulation stuff or, uh, you know, or something specific regulations to your industry. But again, none of it, this is impossible. And if you're in the US, in the Western world in general, it's relatively straightforward because you can look it up. You know what I mean? You can yeah. Google it like you're, I, I think folks doing this in Africa have a much tougher time. Uh, on one hand, regulation is not that strict, but on the other hand, you also don't have access to as many resources I'm not even talking about money, but I'm talking more about data and information yeah. and for what, you know, and, and just a supply network that would be around you, things like that. Um, and then, so you said you, you generally just look it up and, and do, but just by virtue of the volume of paperwork, not just with, not just with the food um, regulation, but everything else, do you ever outsource or have you thought about outsourcing some of that just to give you more flexibility with operations? Or do you do everything yeah, I would, as much as much honestly if if you're not if if you have this um if you have someone you can outsource it to if you can afford to outsource it uh wherever you can hire someone that you know that knows what they're doing better than you do do you know as an entrepreneur that's your job really is to put those people in place but in our case uh we pretty much didn't outsource anything simply <laughs> because we didn't have two things. One, we didn't have the, we couldn't afford it. You know, mm. food consultants are very expensive. And two, since we couldn't afford it, we also, you know, we, we have the, the skill set 
to learn things like this and yeah. relatively short time and implement them just by virtue of our educational background. So I think, I think you know, uh, most people that have had some sort of, that are comfortable with, you know, administrative work, you know, paperwork and or that have a background in really that are that have an, you know, advanced education of some kind ought to be able to do it if themselves, if they, if they want to. But again, if you can afford it, can get someone that knows what they're doing better than you, hire someone and let them yeah. do it the time. Yeah. And then I guess my last question around the food regulation piece before we move forward is around staying through to like the recipe, right? So if I recall, you know, you, the food that you, you sort of had to call your mom <laughs> to put the yeah. first original recipe together. But then in terms of, it's a perishable product, right? So in terms of, I'm sure there's, um, I don't know, regulations around, you know, keeping it shelf stable or whatever to, to make sure that it can last for X number of days. Um, mm-hmm. Does that affect like the authenticity? Like, do you have to change certain things so that it's not as maybe quote unquote authentic as you would like or? No, so the, in terms of the shelf stability of the product, it's, it's up to you, you know, you have a lot of options in terms of how to extend the shelf life of your product. Yeah. Um, as far as the regulatory bodies are concerned, they only care that whatever it is that you adopt is, um, is safe, right? Okay. So they only care about protecting the safety of the con- consumer. Now, you extend the shelf life mainly not because of, because of a safety issue, but because business-wise, you just yeah. you cannot sell a product that expires in three days, right? You don't have enough time. Uh, so, you know, that's whatever option you choose to use uh, uh, as a shelf life extending method, whether it's using preservatives, whether it's using like heat uh, to pasteurize it, whether it's some more novel techniques like high pressure processing, or you're using something like using ozone to, 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 extend, to sanitize it and extend the shelf life. Regardless of what you use, you have to make sure that um, it's, um, it's either a method that's already been approved for your types of products. So for example, if you're doing a beverage that has a certain pH, um, you need to, in order for you to say use pasteur, you know, regular heat pasteurization techniques, there are standards where you have to hold that liquid at a certain temperature, I think it's around 160 for 30 seconds or longer, right? I forget the exact number, but it's around there. And that's guaranteed to kill whatever pathogenic agent that normally would uh, uh, survive in that sort of environment, right? Um, And so on and so forth. So depending on what what your pH is, what your ingredients are, Mm -hmm. whether you're using preservatives or not, you just need to make sure you're using things that are either already approved that's on a list of approved compounds by uh, the regulatory bodies, or you can go to say um, uh, a lab, like in New York, you could go to Cornell University and they'll run some of these tests for you. They'll do a a validation study, meaning they'll take it and run it through the process that you say you will use to produce your product and then test the, the, the shelf life of it and tell you, okay, this is a method that's, that, that has been validated to kill like five logs of, you know, pathogenic compounds that would be in it. I'm getting a little technical. <laughs> no, but it's, I think it's helpful. A lot of people don't, don't get this, this level of detail as you think about it. They think, oh, I make the best, I don't know, watermelon juice. I'm going <laughs> to try to do this. And then they run into these, some of these stumbling blocks. So I think it's helpful. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think we are, you know, we, we, we did too, you know, I mean, going into it, you have no idea what to look, what to look out for. But again, uh, once you know who's regulating you, you can literally reach out to the regulatory body, tell them exactly what you're doing, and you'll find them very helpful. And the shelf life, if you say, you know, this is something you can do beforehand, you can test the shelf life, just roughly yourself at home, right? Like say, you know, your drink will last maybe a week for sure because you've mm. experienced you know that so you can make say four containers seal them test one at a week test one at 10 days or 14 days and keep going <laughs> until, until you get sick <laughs> until <laughs> until until you feel like okay i should not be testing this anymore <laughs> you know i don't i don't recommend you do this at home right because i don't want anyone to get sick at home and come to him give me the- yeah <laughs> but that's yeah 
that's that's essentially what the lab does they'll yeah. tell you okay how many how long do you want to study the shelf life for you say six months or one year and then they'll ask you how many how many points do you want to check it on mm. meaning how at how many different uh, frequent uh, intervals so you can tell them all right test it for six months and test four intervals so they can test it at one month at three months four months and so on okay yeah and then they'll give you a report like a biochemical literally report that tells you okay it's only you should only this is only safe for 45 days or six or two months so yeah wow this is definitely not your grandmother's business (laughs) for sure um interesting okay so let's move on to what i'm sure is the topic that most people are looking to dive into which is funding all right Mm -hmm. so you guys, at least from the outside, looks like you've ramped up relatively quickly in, in terms of just the business. And then also the assumption is, underlying assumption there is that there's been funding to support that that growth, right? And so from what I know, and you can talk about it, you've done that through a mix of different sorts of, um, I, I will call them capital raises um, yeah. <laughs> just from my banking my banking background but you've done um, you've done grants you've done crowdfunding I think you've done some VC funding I'm not sure um, and then you've just had some angel investors too I think so do you want to I'll just leave it open to talk about um, the various ways uh, you funded it and you know what worked what worked what didn't work uh, from your perspective yeah so um you know, if if you start a business, I would say you need to have uh, a very strong desire uh, to make it succeed beyond just money, uh, because it's never <laughs> it's it's never easy. It's always very very difficult. And uh, we we had our mindset on from the beginning: if you had to make one bottle of this thing, sell it and make two, sell those, make three or four, mm-hmm. we would do that. And we were prepared for that. We knew it would be difficult, but and it, it still was not uh, was much more difficult than no, how difficult. It was. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so um, you know, for us, especially you know, uh, immigrants and not just Africans, you know, that come here and most of our family are still back home. Our realities are very different. Like it's very mm-hmm. hard for us to save money because they have to send money back home. Uh, it's very hard to do so many things because there's all these different pressures. Oh, you should build a house home. You should do this. You should do that. Should. Yeah. So getting a, a, a big amount of savings is quite challenging. So when we launched this business, we literally, when we decided we would launch it, by the way, we had already done about, we had, we had, we had been talking about this and thinking about this, how the brand identity would look for, for, for a while at that point. When we finally decided we would launch this. All we had at our disposal was a little less than $1,000. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that's no lie. So we said, okay, is this enough to do anything? <laughs> my, my brother, I remember him saying, well, we can register a company. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds to me like you can register. You can register oh a company God. and that's about it. <laughs> like, all right, that's a start. And I guess I can put my next um, salary into this and we can start buying ingredients and playing around mm-hmm. with it and, 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 and we can get going that way. And, you know, some of the advice you hear out there often I'll go on a tangent a little bit here because all of the books written, the MBA books, uh, the the, the major university advice, it's amazing advice. It's excellent advice. The only problem is it does not take into account the problems that I just told you about or Mm -hmm. the challenges of some people who come really from um, very unique and difficult circumstances. It it looks at people who normally maybe graduated from college, one got an amazing job, saved a ton of money or, or got funding through a friend or family round and such. Uh, so meaning around hundred dollars to $200,000, got the thing started, had a proof of concept, goes and uh, raises a, a million dollars, and then they go, they go boom. And from there they go and they raise $10 million. Um, so that's not the reality of most of our people, unfortunately. You know, we can barely come across $50,000, okay. you know, uh, to do anything. So, and that's the reality that came really quickly. When we did the math, we needed 1.5 million to get started. Oh, wow. Whoa. Yeah. Wait, wait. What wanted, yeah, <laughs> for what we wanted to do, the way we wanted to do it, to do it properly, we needed 1.5 million. Oh, wow. Like, okay. Uh, uh, this, 
Uh, I think this is doable. <laughs> wow! <laughs> wait, cool. wait, wait, wait. Let's let let let's, let's pause. So yeah. a lot of people, a lot of so really speaking now to um, we have a wide audience, but the people that are going to focus in on this are Af- a lot of African immigrants who have businesses in this space, um, and just from by virtue of my experience of talking to a broad range of people, from whether it's service, hospitality to actual packaged goods. Yeah. I don't think I've ever met or spoken to anyone who did the math before jumping in to know <laughs> that they needed X number. People usually jump in and then figure it as they go along and it's like, whoa. So like what, I mean, not without, maybe maybe it's too technical, but how do you arrive at <laughs> 1.5 million number for a juice business? Uh, again, just a side note, if you're listening to this, and you not you don't do the math before you jump. Please do the math before you jump. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Item Thirteen, an African food podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app. To keep up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Item Thirteen Podcast. Item 13 is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.